You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. find your way in the uh, scriptures to Colossians chapter 1. We'll begin reading at verse 19 this morning. And uh, again, if you have a pew Bible there, it should be on page 924. If you end up in the middle of Acts, uh, it's just a different uh, edition of that pew Bible, so don't worry about it. Uh, If you would please stand to read the word of God with me if you are able. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. If you would please be seated. Well, last week we focused a lot on Jesus' sovereignty over the physical creation. And we were rightly impressed about Jesus' qualifications to be the king of the universe. So we read his resume and we find that he has been given the job and that he has done it uh, in verses 19 through 23. I hope you were impressed by Jesus' absolute sovereignty over creation as its creator and sustainer. uh, This morning, my prayer is that you will be even more awestruck by the actions Jesus took to open a way for us, sinners, to know God and to live eternally, glorifying Him. Although we deserved death and destructions at the hand of the Most High and Holy God, Jesus died to accomplish God's pleasure to redeem us and to reconcile us to himself through Jesus. Now, our passage is verses 19 through 23, but I'd like to back up just for a moment to verse 14 uh, to kind of give you an idea of the, the flow in the, in the passage as a whole. We have to break it up into passages so that we can cover it in a reasonable amount of time in a sermon, but uh, Paul intended the, the letter to be read all at once, you know, when, uh, when they met. So look back at verse 14 for a moment. There are two key accomplishments of Jesus to understand in this larger section of Colossians. They, these are, no, number one, redemption in verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins there. And, and secondly, reconciliation in verses 20 and 22. 
Today's passage is about how God brought those accomplishments through Jesus and what they mean for our everyday lives as we walk with him. Now, you can see in verse 14, in whom we have redemption, comma, the forgiveness of sins. You can see how closely Paul connects redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Now, redemption is the purchase of the sinner at the price of God's own son to transform our worthless, sinful lives into lives that magnify the ultimate worth of God. And ultimately, that brings him glory. Now, we believers already have redemption, in whom we have redemption, verse 14 says. But Paul uh, looks forward to a time that he calls, in Ephesians 4.30, the day of redemption, when that redemption will be fully realized. Romans 8.23 says that we are waiting for the redemption of our bodies. I'm going to return to that text later on. Now, redemption transforms our lives in the present so that we live in a new way that's pleasing to God. As Titus 2.14 says, God's purpose is to redeem us from all lawlessness. In our present lives with him, God rescues us from the power of sin. He's already rescued us from the penalty of sin. Now he rescues us from the power of sin. But the best is yet to come. God's plan for redemption will culminate when we are raised from the dead on the day of redemption. So the other accomplishment of Jesus in our passage today is reconciliation. Reconciliation is the restoration of peace between warring parties. The war is over, and the enmity that caused the fight is now resolved. God has reconciled us to himself in Jesus, even though we were the guilty party, even though we were hostile to him in our sins. And to switch from our battle metaphor for a moment, God has removed that sin barrier between us and him so that there are no obstacles to our relationship with him. Our redemption and reconciliation to God have far-reaching implications. Even creation itself will experience the benefits of the end of this war between humanity and God. The remarkable and surprising thing about this part of the passage when we arrive at verses 19 through 23, now this is absolutely remarkable. You thought that Jesus holding the universe together was, was awesome, right? The really remarkable thing about this passage is that God was pleased to accomplish his plan for redemption and reconciliation in Christ Jesus. It's amazing because we deserve destruction. We deserve death as the penalty of our rebellion and hostility against God. Instead, God accepted Jesus' death as payment for our sins and made us holy. So now the passage in verses 19 through 23 then has two, part, two main parts to it. Number one is God's pleasure. I've got some subpoints under that, but we'll come to those. And then the second part is God's purpose. We might call it God's sanctifying purpose. So God's pleasure is our first uh, uh, section here, or perhaps God's good pleasure, if you will. 
And Colossians 1.19 begins with the word for. Now, which, that tells us that there's a connection between the thought of verses 19 through 23 and the previous passage, verses 15 through 18, especially, but 15 through 18 really connect very closely to verses 13 and 14, so that's why I went all the way back to verse 14. So the four is, is really answering the question here, why does Jesus hold such authority? Why does he have such a superior position in verses 15 through 18? This passage is telling us why. And the short answer is, it pleased God. God is rightly pleased with his own glory, so he devised a plan that would bring him the greatest glory and us the greatest appreciation and enjoyment of that glory. And since God's objective is to glorify himself, our objective should be to glorify him as well. So we need to know what pleases God so that we can do what's pleasing to him in the power that he provides. Now, you'll recall, uh, if you go back a little farther in in Colossians, that Paul's prayer for the Colossian church was that they would know God's will for the purpose of pleasing God. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 10 says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So in our passage, God's pleasure is expressed in two aspects of his plan in Christ. First of all, the incarnation, and secondly, reconciliation. Now look at verses 19 through the first half of verse 20 or so. Uh, In the ESV it says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Well, the Net Bible and the NIV actually have, a, uh, have captured a better rendering of the Greek text, if you'll permit me to read it. Uh, the NIV says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Now, we'll consider what fullness means in just a moment. But here we're trying to get at what God's good pleasure means. So it's not God's fullness that was pleased, as you might gather from the ESV. Rather, it's the verb, he was pleased, indicates that God was pleased. God has a will. God took pleasure in his will, and he took pleasure in enacting his plan in Jesus. God is never forced into action. He always does exactly as he chooses in his goodness. Now, even with the ESV's bad translation, sorry, I don't like to say that, but occasionally it happens. Even with the ESV's bad translation right here, that doesn't mean we throw the Bible out. Okay, it's not, not, okay, we're ordering a different set of pew Bibles here. That's not what I mean. I just mean uh, it's a good, good chance to tell you, you need to read the Bible in more than one translation. Let me just put it that way. You've got plenty of English ones to choose from. But even if you're looking at the ESV, it says, and, uh, uh, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Do you see that? And then in verse 20, it says, to reconcile. Those are those two aspects of God's good pleasure. So he was pleased to have his fullness dwell in Jesus, A, 
and B, to reconcile people and all things to himself. So in Colossians 1.19, again in the Net Bible, it says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in the Son. One of the most basic doctrines of the Bible is the Incarnation. That Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. You'll recall last week we focused on his deity. Here we focus on both his deity and his humanity. Now this doctrine is stated clearly in other parts of the New Testament. We've already seen that in John 1.14, for instance, or 1 Timothy 3.16. And there's a really key text in Paul's writings about the incarnation. It's in one of the other prison epistles. It's Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. So if you can turn with me for just a moment to Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8, or just listen uh, as I read it. And we're kind of breaking into a sentence here. So Paul says, who, meaning Jesus, though he was in the form of God, that's being God himself, he, though he was in the form of God, did not equal, count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So he's already in the form of God. He took the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If that's not a step down, I don't know what is. He was God. He stepped down to become man. And even though he had taken on that humiliation of becoming a man, he died on the cross, the very worst kind of death someone could die, the most shameful kind of death someone could die. So Jesus has always been fully God. That's the fullness of deity that we find in uh, 119. But at a specific moment in human history, he took on humanity. He did not lose anything of what it means to be God to become a man. When Paul speaks of emptying, he means the kind of humility it is for a holy God to become human, that is, lower than the angels, and to live among sinful humanity. In the incarnation, then, Jesus became a true human being, not simply the appearance of a human being. He actually died. He did not simply appear to die. And when he rose from the dead, he rose in that same body in which he died. He will always be fully human and fully God. That is a basic tenet of our faith and one that we uh, <clears throat> hold to uh, as strongly as we can because to deny any part of this, to deny Jesus' full deity or to deny his true humanity is to deny who Jesus is. So, Verse 19 again says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in the Son. But how do we know in, in Colossians 1.19 that, uh, that Paul is talking about the incarnation? Well, later in the letter, Paul adds a bit more detail about Jesus. And if you turn to the next chapter for just a moment, it might even be just kind of look across the page here to 2.9. It says, For in him... 
that is Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's a really succinct statement of what we have just been trying to say, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. The fullness of deity in bodily form. And in the next verse, Colossians 2.10, Paul's focus is our need to keep coming to Jesus to avoid being deceived by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, he says. Verse 8. So Paul's aim in our passage is to prepare us to hear Jesus' deity and authority as the antidote to the poison of human corruption, namely those false teachers who are attacking the church in chapter 2. We're really going to we're really going to pull the curtains off of those folks in uh, uh, verses 6 and following in that chapter. Okay, so we've talked about God's good pleasure, that is it was pleasing to him to have Jesus come to this earth as a human being. The second part of God's pleasure is reconciliation. Look at verse 20. And through him, that is, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself, that is, to God, all things. Now, in case you missed that it was all things, he says, whether on earth or in heaven. And how did he do it? Making peace by the blood of his cross. So the second thing uh, it pleased God to do was to reconcile to himself all things. Now, we're going to have to come back to what all things means here in just a moment. For now, I want to note um, through him, that is, through Jesus, God's pleasure is to reconcile us and the world, and God wanted to accomplish this peace between us and him by doing it through Jesus. God does not do anything that he does not do through Jesus Christ. And so this is why we insist on people coming to Jesus. You have to come to Jesus to know God. God does everything through Jesus. Through him, he says. God's pleasure is to reconcile us and the world. And he did it through Jesus because this would glorify him. Now, it's amazing. This, this word pleased, it pleased God. He was pleased because it's amazing because God would delight. This is the term for delighting in a way, in making a way for us to come to him. It's amazing because why would God even want to do it to begin with? I mean, when we look at it from our perspective, but when we look at it from his perspective, he delights to show his glory and he gets more glory by showing it to sinful, undeserving people. Now, in our passage, we see actually two different directions for reconciliation. So God's good pleasure was to have Jesus come in the incarnation and then to reconcile. And we actually see two different directions in which this reconciliation works. First of all, reconciliation of people with God. And secondly, perhaps lesser known, reconciliation of the creation with God. Now, let's start with the more familiar one, and then we'll work, our, we'll work our way back to the less familiar. Reconciliation of God with people. For now, let's skip down to verse 21. And he says, And you, 
who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Now, Paul labels uh, three obstacles to reconciliation. We were, number one, did you see this? Alienated from God. We were, number two, openly hostile to God's character, hostile in mind. And that was evidenced by, number three, evil deeds. So these are states of mind and behavior that keep us from a relationship with God. We don't deserve to be reconciled. We deserve instead to be judged. But God, in His grace, planned to overcome these obstacles. And He was pleased to restore us so that it would glorify Him. Now, this is hard to fathom that God, who would be perfectly fair to condemn us to eternal separation from Him, would instead forgive our sins and glorify Himself by restoring us to a relationship with Him. So he says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In spite of our hostility to God, he has made peace between us and him. He reconciled us to him. We humans are incapable of reconciling God to us. In fact, it would be blasphemous to to think that uh, we could reconcile God to us. It's always God who takes on himself this whole project from start to finish of reconciling us to him. And the price of that redemption is in verse 22, was the death of his son. Did you notice this? In In his body of flesh by his death. You see how he's, he's focused on the true humanity of Jesus. So the means of this reconciliation is in the death of Jesus. The body of Jesus, which was a true body of flesh, meaning it was not an apparition, a true human body. Now, why does Paul emphasize Christ's human body? It's clear later in Colossians that the false teachers attacking the church were contradicting the incarnation and death of Jesus by their works-based, man-centered philosophical system. And so uh, he says that Jesus died on the cross, a true human being. And their claim in chapter 2, you're going to discover, is that... uh, Jesus' work, Jesus' person were inadequate to do what it takes to be right with God. This is why uh, Paul is is insisting on all the fullness of deity. And in chapter 2, you're going to find out that you were filled, that is, that you were adequately provided for to have a relationship with God. So, there's this, there's this aspect of reconciliation that we find here in verses 20, 21 and 22, which deal with our reconciliation to God. There's another category of reconciliation that we find here. If we go back to verse 20 that I skipped earlier, he says, uh, let's, let's explore this category here. Uh, through him, verse 20, that is through Jesus, God's good pleasure was uh, 
to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, all things actually needs some explanation here because all things is not the same thing as all people. We've already seen how all things refers to all creation over which Jesus rules as creator and sustainer. The reconciliation Paul is talking about in verse 20 then is different from the reconciliation of believers in verse 21. You with me there? There's a different kind of reconciliation here that we're talking about. Now, I told you I would come back to Romans 8.23, and so here we are. Uh, By the time he wrote Colossians, Paul had already developed this idea, this distinction between reconciliation between people and God and the the reconciliation of the creation. Romans 8.18 through 23. Now, listen to how creation needs restoration and awaits it as we do. As we do. Uh, Romans 8, 18 to 23. For I consider that our present sufferings cannot even be compared to the coming glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of God who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers together until now. Not only this, but we ourselves also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. We started with redemption so that you could see what the connection between reconciliation and redemption are by seeing how when God redeems us, finally, he will redeem creation. Now, why is that? Well, now, the sin of Adam brought God's curse down on all creation. As Paul says here, the creation was subjected to futility by God. God said to Adam, Genesis 3.17, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Sin is so serious that one human sin of eating from the tree God had forbidden was enough to bring a curse on all of creation. Stop and let that sink in, the weight of that. One sin means all of creation needs an overhaul. Why do we have a new heavens and a new earth? It's because it, the, the heavens and the earth have been corrupted by one human sin. And every sin that followed was just adding to the corruption. So the endless cycle of disaster, decay, and death shows us God's holiness is so great that one sin is the greatest evil against him. Everything we see and know in this world leads to death. Paul describes the creation then as subjected to futility. Lots of biblical writers talk about the futility of this world in contrast to God's eternality. Just read Ecclesiastes, for instance. But let me give you another instance. Isaiah 40, verse 8. It's a great verse. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 
God subjected creation to this futility, Paul says, in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. The death and destruction of temporal things will come to an end only when God finally resurrects us to eternal life first. Only then will he make all of creation fit for our eternal life with God. So we go back to Colossians 1.20 again. You'll see uh, this will kind of piece together, I think. And through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether in earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So God's plan is to restore us to relationship with him and then eventually to restore all of creation to himself. So on the cross, Jesus accomplished our reconciliation to God, but also set the stage for reconciliation of creation to God. The new heavens and the new earth. The curse will be lifted and the enmity of this universe against God that came with Adam's sin will be finally and permanently resolved. You're looking forward to that day? I am. All of creation will once again be at peace with God. So, number one, the incarnation of Jesus, and number two, the reconciliation of people and the reconciliation of creation to God were two things that it pleased God to do. So that's God's good purpose. We come now to God's sanct- uh, sorry, God's good pleasure, I should say. We come now to God's sanctifying purpose. And the two headings here are perseverance and the gospel. They're related. Now, why would it please God to accomplish the incarnation of Jesus for the purpose of reconciliation? It's for us to bring God the greatest glory by the experience of a close and growing relationship with him in time and eternity. Now, verse 22 signals the purpose of God by the words, in order to. Now, let's look at verse 22. He has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to, catch the words, in order to, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So this is God's sanctifying purpose, sanctification. God's purpose is to glorify himself by sanctifying believers both now and in in eternity. We're we're deriving the word sanctifying from the expression to present you holy. Now, in its most core sense, the word holy means distinct, different, or set apart. God is holy. Isaiah 6, uh, verse 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord uh, of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy means that God is completely in a class by himself. And when God wants to use something or someone to represent him or to bring him glory, he has to set apart that item or or person for that purpose. And that was the reason in the Old Testament for all of those sanctifying procedures and the sacrifices that the priests uh, had for themselves and also for all the items that were used in worship. For us, believers, on this side of the cross, God sets us apart or sanctifies us 
to worship him and to make him known in the world. God reconciled us to himself by Jesus' death then in order to sanctify us for his purpose. Now, I've mentioned this uh, earlier, but sanctification involves three phases of God's saving work. Number one, salvation from the penalty of our past sin. Number two, salvation from the present power of sin. And number three, salvation from the presence of sin at the resurrection. So from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin, God is delivering us. Paul's focus here is that second phase, salvation from the present power of sin. That's what we call experiential sanctification in the halls of academia. We call it experiential sanctification. We might call it your walk with God or, or living in a holy way. Now, remember what we said in verse 21, that there were three obstacles to a relationship with God, that we were alienated from God, that we were God's enemies, and that we did evil deeds. Well, if we look to verse 22 again, we find a three-part remedy for those obstacles. In order to present you holy, number one, blameless, and number three, above reproach. These designations indicate our transformation from being enemies of God to being in his family with Jesus as our head. So we've already looked at how holy works, how sanctification works. Let's have a look at the other two designations. The ESV has used the term blameless here to translate a a Greek term that is literally unblemished. Unblemished. It's a term usually used of sacrificial animals. Because in the Old Testament, when you brought a sacrifice, sacrificial animal had to be free of defects so that you couldn't just sacrifice that that animal you just didn't like. You know, you're just ridding yourself of a worthless animal. Uh, So it had to be without blemish. Now, when Paul uses this term unblemished of us, Christians, it means we are now because of what God has done for us, qualified to be a living sacrifice. Our lives can now be employed in the worship of God. Our lives and our deaths will glorify Him. We can really mean it when we say with Paul in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, uh, this other term, above reproach, means that God finds no fault in us because Christ has died for all of our sins. We can rest assured that both now in our experience and in the future when we stand before his judgment seat, he will not find fault in us. This term above reproach uh, is uh, also translated in 1 Corinthians 1.8 in the ESV, it says guiltless. I think that's a good, that's a nice way of saying this too. Above reproach, guiltless, that is There's nothing now that stands between you and God and you're having a relationship with him. So having been reconciled to God and set apart with all of our guilt and evil deeds uh, cleansed from us, we can now draw near him. Notice above reproach, the last two words of the verse, before him. To think, uh, we take it for granted, but to think that you could come into God's presence is a marvelous privilege. 
we have this privilege then of living in front of him. And there are no longer any barriers in our present relationship with God. No guilt in the future. So God was pleased then to get maximum glory by bringing hostile, evil people like us, who are evil by our own nature, to himself and by transforming us into holy people who grow in their relationship with him. Now, this closeness closeness with God leads to an aspect of sanctification called perseverance. Now, verse 23 says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Verse 23 begins with the word if. Now, there are several ways to say if in the Greek language, but the nuance of this particular way of saying it is something like, if indeed, and I am confident that you will, There's even a word there in the Greek text that that even strengthens that, I'm confident that you you will. And it's it's a word that you can't even translate. It's just just this word you stick in when you want to like really emphasize something. So if indeed, and I am confident that you will, is is Paul's uh, encouragement uh, at the beginning of verse 23. Paul is confident then that the, that the Colossians will continue remaining true to the, what they have been taught about Jesus. Now, we call this remaining in the faith perseverance. Now, I just happened to notice in this, uh, on this uh, Sunday school card, the topics of uh, uh, discussion, the last one in, uh, on November 26th will be perseverance. So hopefully I'll be uh, uh, laying the groundwork for that uh, uh, And uh, by November, you'll need a review because we have to persevere in our understanding of perseverance. Now, you and I can't be holy. We can't experience sanctification in our daily lives if we walk away from the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Our day-to-day sanctification then, this being holy and blameless and above reproach, our day-to-day sanctification, our day-to-day experience of that relationship is tied to our remaining in the faith. Now, uh, <clears throat> it's interesting. I think Paul got uh, on, a, on a kick of doing three things in this passage because we've seen him with three obstacles and three remedies, right? And now... Like he's done before in this passage, Paul lays out this list of three characteristics. Did you notice this? It says, if you continue in the faith, now how? Stable, number one. Steadfast, number two. And three, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. These describe then how God accomplishes our perseverance in relationship with him. Did you notice what I said? God accomplishes our perseverance in our relationship with him. You know, we should be asking God to uh, produce these characteristics in us. Stable evokes the word picture of a building on a firm foundation. Your life built on Jesus Christ will produce a lasting result. 
Steadfast can be used of, uh, for instance, siege towers that are not easily toppled by an enemy, that can stand firm. Those siege towers persevere, and then finally the enemy is, is uh, defeated. Paul has evoked a word picture similar to this one, though not with the same word, in Colossians 1.10, about believers being, quote, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. So Paul has already been talking about this, and this is what he's been praying for, is for them to remain steadfast uh, and stable. Now, the third of these characteristics is not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Now, all three of these word pictures emphasize how holding on to Christ, remaining firmly planted on Christ, valuing only Christ, trusting in Christ, are the way to remain faithful, to persevere. These descriptions are Paul's account of how someone is strengthened to remain in the faith. Now, the last of these descriptions, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, gives us insight into motivation for faithfulness. Remember, we talked about hope in chapter 1 earlier on. The hope of the gospel is confidence that God will accomplish his promises in Jesus. We established in Colossians 1, 4, and 5 that Jesus is the hope of the gospel. God has opened our eyes in the message of the gospel to Jesus and to and his promises in Jesus. We look to Jesus to do everything God has promised. So how do we strengthen our hope? Look at Paul's wording. The gospel that you heard here in our verse, verse 23, the gospel that you heard now, if we, you know, I'm bouncing back and forth because I'm, I'm trying to keep you engaged in the entire chapter, really. In Colossians 1.7, those words are seen as well as, just as you learned it from Epaphras. Colossians 1.7, the hope of the gospel, just as you learned it from Epaphras. And here in verse 23, it's the gospel that you heard. Epaphras is that faithful minister who brought you the gospel message and learned it. The Colossians learned it from faithful ministers, in other words. They learned it from Epaphras and from Paul. And so the way to strengthen our hope is to keep hearing this gospel message for them and also for us. And that's why we gather each week to hear the word of God expounded. Unless we continue to engage ourselves in the study and the teaching of the Word of God, then we're leaving our source of hope. We're leaving something that is uh, given to us to strengthen our hope. Now, the gospel is not just a message about how to get saved. I, I, I think that's one of the problems with, when we say talk about the gospel message. People always always think that the gospel just means... Uh, well, I've got bad news for you. I've got good news for you. you know, the bad news is you're a sinner. The good news is Jesus died for your sins. Uh, uh, and the great news is that uh, you can believe on him to have eternal life. Well, that's not the gospel. That's part of the gospel, but that's not the whole gospel. 
See, we have to keep on considering what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he has done. So the gospel isn't just a message about how to get saved. The gospel is the whole marvelous proclamation about how God has come to us and Jesus made a way through him for us to be right with God, to walk with God and to demonstrate his glory to others in the world. See, the, the whole point isn't just getting saved. The point is glorifying God. So our stability and steadfastness depend on our hearing and believing the word of God over and over again. Uh, you know, there's, there's nothing uh, more important than knowing the basics really, really well. Okay, I used to work at a, at a golf club in, in Austin when I was an undergraduate, and uh, uh, they would always put me on the practice tee when the Masters tournament was played there. And uh, I was the one bringing the pros the golf balls. And uh, I, you know, I, was, I was out there and I was kind of listening to these guys and these pros were there talking. And you could see the same swing every time, right? Uh, by the way, I can't, I, I'm terrible at golf. I can shoot 72 on the first five holes. Okay, that's, that's how bad I am. But... Uh, uh, what was I found this fascinating. One pro said to the other, you know, just without really even losing a, a beat, same stroke every time. One pro says to the other, how many balls did you hit this week? Uh, about 10,000. And I go, there it is. That's, that's why those guys can hit so well. Um, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, if I hit 10,000 golf balls, I, it wouldn't help me. But my point is, the professionals are the people who know the basics really well. Right? They can do them in their sleep. Okay, so now, we're not professionals, I know that. Okay, so my, my analogy breaks down. But the really important thing is that we keep going back to the basics. You can never, ever get away from the basics. And so we need to keep hearing this word of our hope being in Jesus, and we go to the Word of God to find it. So let's clear up some, some uh, misunderstandings of perseverance, maybe. First of all, perseverance must not be understood as working for salvation. I've emphasized this over and over again. It's God who does this from start to finish. Nor does a lack of perseverance mean that someone has lost salvation. Okay, those who are saved can never lose their salvation, so lack of perseverance doesn't mean a loss of salvation. Though a, a persistent lack of perseverance might mean that a person never was saved. That's different from losing salvation. Now, everyone to whom God grants salvation will never lose it. Uh, one of my colleagues uh, who uh, <clears throat> is in imitation of, of a great uh, theologian by the name of uh, Charles Ryrie, said, uh, if you could lose your salvation, uh, if you could lose eternal life, we're calling it the wrong thing. Right? So, you can't lose your salvation. But, secondly, perseverance is not something we do in our own power. God is the one who accomplishes it in our lives. Philippians 2.13 says, for it, uh, <clears throat> for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
Do you hear that word good pleasure in there? That's that same, uh, that's a noun. It's the same verb that we saw back in verse 19 in our passage. For it pleased God or God was pleased. Thirdly, it's not something we are to judge in others. You and I aren't given permission to make declaration on whether this person is saved or that person is saved. So what is perseverance then? Well, it's a demonstration of the authenticity of faith. We noticed the word if that begins verse 23. Remaining in the faith is an expectation that if someone has come to faith in Christ, his or her life will show some signs that God is at work. Now, we'll never be perfect in our walk with Christ. And we all have questions and doubts. We're all inconsistent in our relationship with God at times. But that's no excuse to be at at peace with sin and unbelief in our lives. If there's no struggle against sin, if there's no fight against unbelief in our lives, we have an indication that we have not embraced God's promises in Jesus. Now, I come now to, uh, we were talking about perseverance. We shift slightly here, but it's not quite that much of a shift. We shift to the gospel here and Paul's special role in God's purpose. Perseverance is the indication, like I said, of the authenticity of the Colossians' faith. And Paul's apostleship is an indication of the authenticity of the gospel message. Look Look how he does this. It says, if indeed, verse 23 says, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. Paul's designation then of himself as a minister of the gospel is the assurance that his message has the authority and the authorization of Jesus. So Paul is telling the Colossians and us two things. First, he says, not to waver from the gospel message that you heard. And secondly, he's telling them to test anything else they hear by the standard of that gospel message that they've already received. You heard it. You received it. It was proclaimed, past tense. That gospel message must be the yardstick against which all else is measured. Now, later in the letter, and I hope I'm not stealing anybody's uh, uh, thunder uh, of their sermon here. In 2.6, Paul says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. The gospel message of Jesus' true humanity and his full deity, his death on our behalf, his resurrection, and our redemption and reconciliation to God through what Jesus did, form the outline of that doctrine that keeps us holding on to this hope. This hope that God promises in Jesus. This hope, then, will protect the church against false doctrine that the heretics in chapter 2 are pushing on the Colossian church. If you were to believe the heresy in chapter 2, you won't be walking in the same way that you received Christ. And when Paul says the gospel was preached in all creation under heaven, he certainly doesn't mean that the church has completed the task of the Great Commission. Notice again what he says in verse 23. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed 
in all creation under heaven. He means that the church is in the process of fulfilling the Great Commission, that they are faithfully carrying the gospel into all the world, as Colossians 1.6 told us, outside the areas where Jewish people usually live. So under, under heaven, in all creation under heaven, means that the gospel is for everyone. And because the gospel is for everyone, neither Jews nor Gentiles can claim spiritual superiority. Now, I mention this because, of course, as well, when we meet those false teachers, we'll discover that there's an era of elitism to these false teachers who are attacking the Colossian church. These false teachers want to puff themselves up on their own religious experiences and make everyone else feel inferior because they haven't attained the great spiritual heights. Paul rejects all such arrogance. So, stand firm in the gospel, the message from which you heard the hope of eternal life in Jesus, who took on human flesh to die for our sins, to redeem us and to reconcile us to God, to make us holy and fit to represent God in this world and to manifest his glory. Keep walking in the same faith and hope by which you received Jesus. When you live in line with what God has been pleased to do in Christ, God is pleased by faith like this. Let's pray. Father, your grace has brought us from death to life. You were pleased to send your Son, fully God yet born truly human, to die for us, to bring us to reconciliation with you. You went further than that, though, Father. You've seen to it that we would be transformed and set apart to worship you and to show your name great in the world. Keep us from faltering in our walk with you. Give us discernment to help those who are doubting. Help us to show them your son's superiority to all else that might trouble us or them. Keep us clinging to the hope set before us, full of confidence and firm to the end. And we ask all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.